Greetings in Jesus' precious name this morning. Just a few introductory comments. Thank you for the prayer and support that you have invested into this message. May you be blessed for that. Um, there is maybe a tiny danger that you came to hear what Brother Steve has to say, and that could be disappointing. Um, if you listen to the Lord, that will be better for both of us. Two weeks ago, nearly, exactly, um, I was still grappling with what to preach, what to say. It had been on my heart for quite a while, ever since the calendar came out. And then it was just there in front of me in bold letters, written so clearly that I could not miss it, and the text was this. Finally, all of you, be of one mind. It's up here. <laughs> That's where it Having compassion for one another, love is brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous. And so I had in mind maybe to bring a New Year's message. Um, this could be goals for the New Year. But it's in 1 Peter 3, verse 8, and so I invite you to turn there. You may remember that when this was put up, someone took a picture of various people helping. That was an exemplification of the verse, the project of hanging the verse in the front. I've enjoyed these verses, these mottos. It struck me that this could be a motto for a home. Our home could benefit from this. A church or even a workplace. Um, this, this, I have made four points. It was tough for me to differentiate in my mind between compassion and tenderhearted. Um, now, someone could probably enlighten me later, but it was hard for me to separate those two. So we have um, these four things and you might wonder, let's just start with this. So why did Peter say, finally, right in the middle of his first book? <laughs> Usually when a minister says, in conclusion, he's about finished. Um, it could be that you would see the rest of the book as kind of a postscript. He touches um, after this on the suffering they are experiencing, um, the suffering that Christ experienced, brief words to church leaders, personal greetings. And so, um, and perhaps it just went longer than he expected. That has happened too. When somebody is speaking or writing, um, it may come difficult, or it may be that after you say in closing, you have many more things to write. It also could be that when he says finally, you could take it this way, as in, in summary of what I've just described, or most importantly, or remember this on this point. And so chapter 3 of 1 Peter, he speaks to wives um, exercising submission and um, being careful with how they present themselves, a chaste conversation with fear, how they dress. Um, he also says in verse 7, likewise, again, likewise ye husbands, um, and gives them some advice. And then in verse 8, it seems like he is maybe speaking to both or to all when he says, finally, in summary, all of you have unity. Um, that is one rending of be of one mind, single-minded or unity. And so this morning I was just thinking, about unity and how important unity is, but how much unity is kind of a byproduct. It, it seems like one of those things like humility that when you focus on unity and you're trying hard for unity, it can almost 
destroy it like a breathing on a snowflake or something because um, it's a byproduct, I think, of having a common focus or similar, a common goal um, and a united front and a clear vision. It also has a lot to do with focus. If our focus is kind of inward, and I would almost use the word, <laughs> yeah, it, if our focus is inward, not so much on ourselves, but on whatever, like, like one of the disciples asked Jesus, what about my brother, what about him? Um, that can be um, challenging to unity, but if our focus is outward toward those that we can minister to and upward toward the Lord, and if inward, strictly to ourselves, and what can I do to improve unity? I think unity can be a great byproduct. And it's not that we shouldn't strive for unity, but something that um, mostly as we are committed to the Lord and each other, um, that it comes out of that. Someone did say one time that unity is more like harmony than unison. And I do like that. When we sing in unison, everyone sings exactly the same notes. <clears throat> As I look over the congregation this morning, we are not all exactly alike. In fact, we have uh, quite a variety of backgrounds and um, upbringings and convictions. But if harmony is where we are shooting, then it doesn't. we don't have to be on the same exact perfect um, note, but a note that blends and builds and adds to and doesn't take away from the music of the brotherhood. Well, I think that is more accurate to say that the brotherhood is in harmony, not necessarily. I'm glad we don't need to be in unison necessarily, but we have unity by harmony. And so as we work toward that, it's a blessing. I wanted to mention too that this, this right at the end when he says be courteous, we'll get there, but... Just recently, I realized that a full half of the English translations actually take the word a different way and say, a humble mind. Um, RSV does that. Finally, all of you have unity of spirit, sympathy, love of the brethren, a tender heart, tender-hearted, and an humble mind. And so we would get there, we'll just spend a little bit of time on courtesy and humility and how they go together. <clears throat> As we think about unity, let's just... Keep our, our marker maybe there at First Peter, but for unity, let's go to Ephesians 4, verse 1 through 6. <clears throat> As we think about what our unity is built on, um, sometimes we focus on our differences, which is probably not the most helpful thing, <clears throat> considering that probably in 99% we are similar or alike. And I really like how Paul brings that out when he's writing to the Ephesians about unity. He says to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. So our calling is the same. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. And so Paul writes the same as Peter, but using different words. Verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So there is a connection there between unity and peace. And of course, the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, there is one body, the church, one spirit, the Holy One, just as you were called with one hope of your calling, one 
Lord, shall we say about one hope, that's the hope of gaining eternity with Christ, one Lord, that is Jesus himself, one faith in him, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So concerning unity, we are unified on those points and many, many more. But because we are together on those points, the outworkings of that tend to be complementary to each other. <clears throat> Let's move now to compassion and tenderheartedness. <clears throat> and if you think about Christ in the four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, quite a number of times he was moved with compassion. And I would like to just emphasize that this morning, that compassion um, is something that starts in the heart, but it must work out of that to be real compassion. So let's go to Matthew 14, chapter 14 and verse 14. <clears throat> It's helpful to remember that Jesus was a very busy man. And yet in that, he took time to pray. He took time to help others. In fact, that was his main mission. And to teach his disciples. <clears throat> I was just blessed by how Matthew states this. He says in verse 14 of 14, <clears throat> excuse me, and when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. I want to say that's a little counter to how we react to crowds. Most of you and most people I have met say, well, they don't like big crowds. They don't like too many people. They feel smothered. They feel intimidated. They feel alone. They feel this and that. Well, Jesus saw a huge mob, a great multitude of people, and he was moved with the compassion. So there's something we can learn from that. Verse 15. When it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, remember he had spent the day in their service, having healed. <clears throat> this is a deserted place. So they were not in the town. They were out in the country. And the hour is already late. It was toward evening. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And so they had a supper together before they were dismissed. And I don't know if then if they dismissed in the dark or at sundown or how that might have been. But Jesus didn't want to send these people away hungry. And he said, on top of what we've done all day, we will do yet this thing. Um, and he was moved with compassion. There's a couple other times that the word compassion comes up, and they're in very um, common, well-known parables. Um, remember the Good Samaritan. I think that's a great exemplification of the word compassion. Um, a priest, this is in Luke 10, 31 to 33, if you want to go there. But So a man was robbed and injured. And then a priest went past, and a Levite went past, and then a Samaritan went past. And it says in verse 33, he had compassion. And I have to ask you, what was different about him? Did, did the others not care? Did they care? 
Were they in a hurry? Did they not have time? Um, did they not want to become unclean? Was there something about that? Um, and so why did the Samaritan, why does it say he had compassion? Well, he did something. I think that's probably where we get hung up. He not only saw the need, but he did something. Also in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, which is super well known, um, it says the father was moved with compassion. So there was a wayward son um, and a heartbreaking situation of separation and waste and broken relationships. But the father's heart was just moved with compassion when he saw the son starting to return. And I think that was the turning point for the father when he had compassion. Not that he probably didn't before, but the turning point for the son had happened previously to that. I would like to turn to 1 John 3, 17 also for this point. I'm impressed again how different writers of the New Testament correlate so much. They say many of the same things in different ways. So you have mostly Paul, Peter, and John and Luke writing a huge chunk of the New Testament, and they, they intertwine so perfectly. Um, and so each of these writers touch on all of these points, really. But John writes in 1 John 3, 17, Whoever has this world's goods, um, we'll just pause there and ask if that's us, and we have to say yes, we have many of those. We have just come through Thanksgiving and Christmas, and um, we have goods aplenty. Continuing, and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him. How does the love of God abide in him? But whoso hath this world's good, this is conversely, and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? I have read that verse twice because I put it in my notes twice by mistake. And so the question is, how... How, how can we justify having much and knowing of needs and not making or doing something about it? And so I was thinking about the Good Samaritan. So he did one little, you would say little? One act of compassion and kindness. But he didn't address world hunger. He didn't address war. He didn't address all the other hurting people, and even Jesus was limited. I have wondered many times how many people knew of Jesus, wished to be healed, and weren't. I don't know if that, if that happened or not. Was it everyone? Um, were there limits to what? I know it was limits to where he could be. Were there, were there people that are not written about, that, that tried hard and could not get through? Um, we don't know that, but Jesus had compassion on the ones he could help, and I think that's where we get stuck sometimes. We say, well, I can only do a little bit, or, well, I could give $50, but what what does that do when there's a billion-dollar need? Or how does, how does doing this little thing for somebody, why does it make any difference? Well, so we decide not. Don't forget about the lady and her two mites, who Jesus said was a big gift, <laughs> And so I think small things, even a cup of cold water, can be big things in God's kingdom. As I analyze this thing of compassion, this is just from my perspective, and I'm going to try to tell you where I get hung up so that I know where to get across. But we often see needs. that I think you can identify that. We often see needs. We don't know 
exactly how to relate to them all, but we do see and recognize many needs. And so then we go, secondly, to the thinking or evaluating a response or maybe ways we could help. And so I don't know if this is somebody broke down by the road, if it's somebody that just seems like it's an endless opportunity to keep working and doing good um, and there's no end in sight or what this thing might be. Maybe it's the war in Ukraine. But so, so we start analyzing in our mind, well, I could do this or I could do this or I might, eh, I don't know. Um, but that's a, that, is a, that is a common place to stop is right there. You know, we think about it and we kind of, uh, not sure. And then life moves along and the clock ticks and the opportunity came and went and we're on to something else. And so I think step three is probably the one that we fail in sometimes, and that is to carry it out. <laughs> um, General George Patton was not a godly man by any means, but he did strike on a truth when he said this, a good plan executed now is better than a perfect plan next week. And I think that is a huge hindrance to being compassionate. We always think, well, I could do it better if, or maybe next week, or somebody else is surely better equipped, or it doesn't suit right now, or I don't know, the host, the list just goes on and on and on. But remember, a good plan executed now is much better than a perfect plan next week. Because the problem is next week, the need may have been filled by somebody else. It may, it, it's just life is not that way. We can't always expect next week to be that much better to meet a need. So moved with compassion. I'm going to close by saying this on compassion. Compassion is like faith. James is very clear that if faith doesn't do something, it's not faith. And I say compassion is not compassion if it doesn't do something. We may feel sympathy we may have a desire uh, we may even have a good intention but unless we carry that out we have stopped short of being the blessing we could have been now there are many needs we can meet let's not get distracted by the fact we can't meet them all let's just meet the ones that we think god would like us to try to take care of that doesn't mean that we will exhaust ourselves day and night of trying to meet everyone's needs it means that we will evaluate them and try to help with the ones that we can. Maybe asking God specifically, should how should I relate to this? This seems like a dead-end street. This seems like a, a rat hole. We're pouring in time, energy, money. Um, God can help us sort through that. And I would say this also concerning compassion. Compassion almost always, if it's put into action, requires time. Almost always. Sometimes it requires money. Sometimes it requires emotional energy, but always time. And I think God would just have us use our time in compassionate ways if possible. Okay, let's go to love. Um, he has up here. Um, love as brethren. Okay, so we have three boys. Some of you have brothers. Some of you have sons. And I'm wondering if this is a high standard. <laughs> um Loving his brethren. No, it is true that brothers may scrap a little bit, but actually in the end, blood is thicker than water, we might say, and that is they really will stick up for each other. Brothers in the church, brothers in a family, and so as we love his brothers, it means we've grown up together. We know each other's quirks, shortcomings, strengths, and we still stick up for each other. We love as brethren or as sisters. And so love is just a huge subject. It's all through the Bible. 
I hardly know where to start on stopping this one except to say that God reached out to man with love first. Um, remember in the garden, God reaching out to man, man falling, and God immediately, in his foreknowledge, making a plan for man to come back to him. And so John says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I think he was having in mind the entire scope of history of God working with his people, wayward Israel, the very rough time of the judges, the crowning of the kingdom, the years of silence, uh, the New Testament era with Christ, and maybe even the future of the Christian church. God so loved that entire span of time and all the people that included that he gave his son because they had a serious need of redemption. John writes much about love. You can read about love in 1 John 4, 14, 15, all the way down into 20. Um, maybe 19 is kind of the crux of the matter. We love him because he first loved us, so God loving us motivates us to love him back. And then verse 20, also, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And so um, just a very basic thing that we love God first of all, and then second, Jesus said, the second commandment is likened to that, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And so you might say that love is the underpinnings or the foundation of the subject of unity, of the subject of compassion, of the subject of courtesy, of the subject of humility, um, of the subject of being tenderhearted. Because love is the motivation, it's what's in the heart, but it needs to work out in ways. And so it works out in these ways we're talking about. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 13. That is your classic passage on love. Won't read it all, just. Uh, Maybe the heart of it. First Corinthians thirteen four, five, six, and seven. Love suffers long. Well, that's interesting. You would think if everybody loved it would be easy, but it says it suffers long, so it must not always be equitable. And is kind. That sounds like courtesy. Love does not envy. That's looking at somebody else and wishing you were in their shoes. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. Hmm. That's having more and being proud of it. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Love is not easily provoked. Love thinks no evil. Bears Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Yes, all things. Love does that. Believes all things, all good things. Hopes all things, endures all things. And so you, you might get the feeling from that that love is not um, necessarily a perfect thing in a perfect vacuum. Love has these responses to all these unpleasant things that come along. Well, that's what love looks like. And Peter says, 1 Peter 4, verse 8, And above all things have fervent love among yourselves. And so I think as we focus on love, working out of our hearts toward God, toward our fellow men, it, um, it, it becomes easy for these other things to take place. Okay, and lastly, let's speak just a bit about courtesy and humility. That is, be courteous, or RSV, I think, said, be humble. How did it say that? It said, a tender heart and an humble mind. So you might just, just explore a little bit. So how do humility and courtesy go together? 
Well, think about it this way. Humility is kind of a, a lower esteem of yourself and a higher esteem of others, and it's exactly what courtesy is. Courtesy, lack of courtesy is me first. Um, courtesy is you first. And I would ask this, um, you know, common courtesy, someone is aptly asked, if courtesy is so common, why do we not see more of it? And so maybe courtesy is a bit on the decline. I would say this about be pitiful. That is the um, King James. Maybe your Bible says be pitiful. We just told a child this morning, don't be pitiful, meaning don't cry crocodile tears over small things. And so let's not be pitiful. Let's be pity us or compassionate or um, exhibiting or showing pity instead of asking for attention over small things, easily offended. That's a better understanding of the word pitiful. Okay, back on courtesy and humility. Um, I was trying to think through this a little bit. So what is courtesy? It is um, a little bit of a lost thing. It's interesting that the further north you go, the less you seem to find, uh, both in driving and mannerisms. And the further south you go, it may not be alive and well, but it's more alive and more well in the Carolinas. Um, you ought to travel down south and find out, sir and madam, please, how may we help you type of thing. I really enjoy that, and we have a lot to learn. Um, courtesy and humility, it's good manners. Um, there's a little book around called Good Manners Are Homemade, and I am appalled at our children's sometimes lack of where we wish they were. And it is a reflection either on their parents or genetics or something. I would like to blame it on the fallen man, but it's not all that. It's something that we struggle with. Um, it is etiquette, and etiquette is being a little proper, but not so proper as to be stiff. Um, it is politeness, maybe a little cultured, that is uh, uh, aware of what is acceptable or genteel. I also thought of some antonyms to courtesy. You can probably think of many of these, but sometimes it's just helpful to think about what is courtesy not. It is um, so an, an incourteous or an, uh, a lack of courtesy is selfish. Just, I don't know if anybody would say, well, it's me first and me only, but maybe it comes across that way because it is a little that way or self-centered. Uh, there's only so much, and so make sure I get it. And that's why I am just adamantly opposed to Black Friday shopping because of the elbowing your way to the front to get the first five because they might disappear. Um, sorry, that was just a little extra. But it just seems totally counter to anything I've ever been taught about being courteous. Um, courtesy antonyms can, can uh, rough. Um, courtesy is not curt. That's just a little side definition. Um, I don't know how this fits, but redneck, it can be as far as barbaric, crude. Um, and I thought later that it could it can range from the oblivious, as in just someone who is totally unaware of how they're coming across, to the obnoxious, as in I don't I don't care how I come across. It's me, and this is how I am. Um, courtesy reaches way beyond those things. And so I am not wanting anyone to feel like they have to fit any certain formal mold. But as we are 
conscientious of other people and we try to reach out to them and help them. Um, and then we start realizing that there are things in my heart I need to work on. I think courtesy can be a, a growing thing. I was just impressed as a, a little um, example of courtesy. I, Abraham was a great man of faith, but as I thought about people exercising courtesy in the Bible, Abraham did that. Whether Lot was older or younger, I don't know, but courtesy addressed the issue gently, saying, please let there be no strife between you and me. And there's a please in the Bible. Um, New King James has that, Genesis 13, 8. Abraham says to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me, my employees and your employees, for we are brethren. And so he told Lot, why don't you choose? And so he had thought about the problem. He had voluntarily made this sacrifice that I'll take what's left. And then he presented it to Lot. And it's interesting that Lot just looks around, makes the choice. Um, that stands in stark contrast to, I don't know if you want to turn there, but in Genesis 23, Abraham's wife had died. And so he was grieving and he did not have a burial place, and he was talking to the sons of Heth, and they have this interesting negotiation. And I wish more negotiations were like this, because Abraham said, I would like to, I'm a foreigner and a visitor, I would like to purchase a burial spot. And their response was, hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince, bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. So now they're, they're not arguing, but they're both willing to give. And then they have a further discussion, and the man finally says, well, if you really want to know, it's worth 400 shekels of silver, but what's that between you and me? As in, that's its value, but you still don't need to pay. And Abraham wanted to pay and paid the full price, and the man accepted it. So they were able to close the argument in a reasonable manner, too, instead of continuing to say, no, I'll pay, no, I'll pay, no, I'll pay, no, I can't live with that. Um, so it has to come to an end sometime. But I do like the negotiation there. Um, negotiations can go the other way quickly, as in, I'll give this, and they say, no, it's worth this. And I just say, in, in Abraham and Lot, Abraham made a generous offer, and Lot seems to just take it, just like that. In Abraham and the sons of Heth, there was this little exchange of, we'd like to bless you, or we'd like to bless you, and then they settled it. So that's in Genesis 23 for your further reading. I also thought we could turn to Acts 28. Let's do yet that. Um, so this was a uh, kind of a bad situation. There was a storm at sea and on land, both. And there was a shipwreck, and Paul and his people, he was one of the people that were wrecked and escaped. And it was cold and wet and um, they were shown hospitality. And so I just want to say that courtesy includes hospitality. I just really like how um, whoever wrote Acts says it in verse chapter 28, verse 2, and the natives, so in that word you could kind of read unknown or barbaric people, showed us unusual kindness. So there's your definition for courtesy, unusual kindness. They kindled a fire, made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. So that rain followed that storm, and um, evidently people on the island had experienced that storm as well. And then it continued beyond that because Paul um, healed people in verse 9 and verse 10. Right there at the end, they provided such things as were necessary. 
Um, so in our hospitality, um, we should probably give some attention to the things that are necessary. I noticed too that um, qualifications for a bishop and maybe others, a lover of hospitality. And Paul, in writing to Romans, says, distributing to the necessity of saints given to hospitality. In other words, I think they enjoyed it. Um, hosting people, I'm not sure what all hospitality included, maybe strangers. Jesus did give some advice on that. He said, don't just have the people that can bless you back, have people that can't. Um, and so that's probably true hospitality. I don't know what else to say about good manners except it's a work in progress. Um, I, I like to think that if we fail, it's oblivion. Um, and yet sometimes it's just a matter of uh, growth that we need. But I do challenge you to, um, to think about courtesy, not only to your brothers and sisters here at church, but to outsiders, to your waitress, your gas station attendant, people that you rub shoulders in. You want to be a missionary, you want to be a good witness, you want to live a good testimony, and yet sometimes our frantic pace of life can cause us to come across as kind of short and um, hospitality and courtesy um, take time, just like compassion does. In closing, thinking about the year 2023, this is the first morning of the new year. Um, uh, it, in my mind, there's this picture of a snow-covered field. We're walking through it. Um, our tracks will be visible, both which way we're going and how fast and the progress we've made. Um, I pray that this coming year will be marked our tracks will reveal compassion, love, humility, and courtesy. God bless you.